Hi, Creative. It's Lauren here, and I wanted to ask you a quick favor. If you like this show and it has helped you, please remember to rate, review, and follow it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Also consider sharing the show on your Instagram stories or Twitter. Tag the guest at Unleash Your Inner Creative and at Lauren LaGrasso, and I will repost to share my gratitude. Thank you so much for listening and supporting the show. And now let's get to the creative chat. Hello, and welcome to Unleash Your Inner Creative with Lauren LaGrasso. I'm Lauren LaGrasso. I'm an award-winning podcast host and executive producer, singer-songwriter, public speaker, actor, and creative coach. And this show is meant to give you tools to claim the word creative, take fear out of the driver's seat of your life, gain awareness around mental health and spirituality, and own your right to have a dream and take up space. At the end of the day, it is a show to help you love yourself enough to pursue whatever it is that's on your heart. So I'm wondering, do you ever feel like a lot of your creative path is out of your control? For a lot of creatives, actors especially, it can feel like you're putting so much energy out into the world and not receiving much back. You're just waiting for someone to tell you you're good enough to do what you love. If this sounds like you, you're not alone. Today's guest was there once, but he found a way to grow his confidence and self-love by creating his own content and therefore opening up a world of opportunity. He has amazing tips on how to use social media to create, manifest, and spread your truth. His name is Michael Judson Berry. He's an actor, comedian, and famous TikToker known for his incredible impressions of the characters from Schitt's Creek. You might know his show, Quarantine Time with Moira Rose, which has gone viral across all social media platforms and resulted in Pop Sugar dubbing Michael as one of the top 15 best TikToks of 2020. I wanted to have Michael on the show because he shines such a bright light on the pros of using social media and how spreading honesty and positivity can lead to great success. So much of our happiness resides in how we express ourselves creatively, and taking control of that is such a vital part of feeling and being seen. I hope his persistence in following his dreams inspires you as much as it did me. Now here he is, Michael Judson Berry. Well, welcome to Unleash Your Inner Creative. I'm so excited to have you here. You uh, have such an amazing career and it's just starting to really, really take off. So I feel honored to talk to you when your stardom is just burning so bright. So thank you for being on. Oh, thank you for having me. My pleasure. You know, I was reading your bio and I was telling you before we went live that I too am a theater kid and I really related. And I was so happy you put this in your bio because you said, you know, your first role was a prince in The King and I at the age of six. And then something lit up in you. I was, uh, they made up a role for me. I was a hill child in The Sound of Music. <laughs> Is it just me or just the hill children of Sound of Music sound like a horror movie spinoff? It basically was. Like Revenge of the Hill Child. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, it was amazing. I definitely looking back, I'm like, you know, they could have given me one of the roles of like the Van Trapp children, but they chose to make up a role for me, which shows you I was very special. <laughs> but I love when you talk about this. So I wonder if you could like take us through what the moment was during that production when you knew this was the thing for you. Uh, so it was in The King and I. I was one of the little royal children, obviously this was a long time ago, um, who got to look up Mrs. Anna's skirt because she obviously wore that big hoop skirt. And it's the little boy who like looks up to see if her legs are actually shaped like that. 
or if she has like thin legs and it got a laugh every night. And that was like my one little bit in the show. And I didn't know why people really thought it was funny. I just knew that they did. And that was just the best feeling in the world. So I remember we finished that production. I went to my parents and I was like, I want to do another one. And the next one I did was Oliver. And I remember sitting, you know, on the same theater company, sitting on stage singing, where is love? And something in me just sort of clicked. I remember during that song, like being alone in the spotlight, alone on stage and singing, like belting out Where is Love, my little eight-year-old self, and just thinking it was the greatest feeling in the world. Mm. Yeah. I love little Michael. (laughs) One of those, you know, little moments that you just never forget. You're like, ah, I close my eyes and I'm right there again. So I guess I have a couple questions. So you're both a singer and an actor. What's the difference between expressing yourself through acting and singing? Or do you kind of see it as the same thing, just in, using it in different ways? I, I think it's it's kind of about the same, using it in different ways. Just because either way, you're telling a story, right? You're trying to convey whatever this character is feeling. In a sense, singing is almost easier just because you also have the music underneath you to also help like tell that story. It's almost like a duet, you know, because you have the accompaniment, you have whatever, or at least like the notes that the composer has given you to help convey what it is you're feeling along with the words so that's why I think sometimes singing is a little bit easier if it's a more emotional thing so it helps get you into it I love thinking of singing as a duet like it's a creativity duet yeah that's true yeah you have you have a little helper in the melody so you really followed this path I mean you went to undergraduate school for acting you got your master's degree in classical acting which I love (laughs) yeah yeah I I also I love uh, classical acting that was like my first ever paid gig was in a Shakespeare festival in Michigan Ooh, (gasps) what was it Michigan Shakespeare festival is a very small part I was in as you like it and I played Audrey I was really hoping you're gonna be like I was a hill person oh you know I was (laughs) gonna say like following the like line of they made up roles for me I was also in the tempest and I played a nymph so I guess uh-huh. I've always like had made up roles. You just blazed your own path in these productions. Truly, truly. But I just, I love that. And I want to know from your perspective, like what was the benefit of actually going to theater school? Why did you go back for your graduate degree? What drew you to that? Uh, so the house that I grew up in, um, so my mom is a clinical psychologist and has a PhD. My dad is a lawyer who, you know, obviously went to law school. So education is very important to them. So 18 year old me was like, I want to move to New York and be on Broadway. And they were like, great, you're going to get a, a college degree as well. <laughs> um, they're like, we're fine with it being acting. We fully support you being an actor. That's great. But we'd love for you to have a bachelor's. So that's where going to drama school came from. And I'm really glad I did just because um you learn so many technical things. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot of link later, a lot of voice classes, movement classes, things like that. So, and also college itself is just an amazing experience. You know, yeah. you don't, I think, fully appreciate it at the time, uh, especially in the arts. You know, it's four years where you just get to be an actor and roll around on the floor and yeah. dance and cry a lot. It's great. <laughs> it's the best. Uh, yeah. And uh, and then, so I graduated and actually did a casting internship right out of college. I went to Boston University and they have this internship program in LA with CBS. So to go and learn about the industry, because, you know, drama school, it's wonderful. They teach you all about how to be an actor and how to use your instrument, but you learn very little about the realities of the business, which is very harsh sometimes. And that's why one of the heads of CBS was a BU alum. And she was like, we really should prepare our kids for this. So I interned on CSI Miami in their casting office and ended up really loving it. So from there, I sort of bounced back and forth between acting and casting in New York and in L.A. 
and what drew me to grad school was I had worked in casting for a chunk of time. And I was like, I really, I miss acting and I feel really rusty. Like I was auditioning and I was like, I don't know why this isn't working. Right. Um, maybe I should go back to school. And so that's why I applied to different grad schools, but Lambda, the London Academy of Music and Dramatic Art was my top choice because I'd studied abroad there when I was young and loved London. And also it, because it was classical acting, it was sort of the scariest. Because up to that point, most of the acting I had done was musical theater. And I was like, well, Shakespeare's terrifying. <laughs> if I can get into the school, let's see what happens. Um, somehow got in. And it was amazing because even though I haven't done much Shakespeare since then, I feel like it's sort of like how dancers treat ballet. You know, it's like where everything is based from. So if you can, everything I learned studying Shakespeare and Jacobean and Greek tragedy and things like that are all still very applicable to contemporary pieces as well. In fact, I learned that Shakespeare is not half as scary as I thought it was. It's actually kind of like singing how it's in that wonderful rhythm. Yeah. It's so much easier to memorize, if anything else. Totally. And also to get the emotion of it because you know exactly what you're supposed to be hitting. Oh, completely. I love that. You know, so that was another interesting part of your story and your journey is that you worked in casting. And I think so many creative people end up in adjacent fields, right? Uh -huh. Which is good for a while. You learn certain things from it. But sometimes when you're in that adjacent field, you can actually feel further away than ever. It's like you're putting your face up against glass that you can never break. Yeah. And I'm just curious for you, when you were in that situation, how did you feel inside? Did you have that feeling? Um, a little bit. It was it was a mix of like whenever I went back into casting. So it'd be in casting for a little while and then I'd be like, oh, I can't be behind a computer anymore. I need to start auditioning again and then, then book a job and leave. But whenever I was doing it, it, it was a trade-off. It was wonderful because it, it was stable. And, you know, when you're an actor, stability is such a rare thing. So I was like, I have a weekly paycheck. What is this? And I have weekends <laughs> off? What a concept. So that was wonderful. But yeah, the problem was every once in a while you'd see a role come along that you're casting and I would just really want to play it. And the whole time I'm watching other actors auditioning, I'm thinking about what I would do differently. And that's how you know, like, you shouldn't, like, for me, I was like, this is why I should never be full-time a casting director, because I'm kind of putting a little judgment hat on those actors, because I'm thinking how I would do it. Luckily, my boss, uh, who was a former actor at the time, never felt that way, she's a casting director. She's brilliant at it and has no desire to act. But yeah, those were those little frustrating moments where I was like, ah, I, I wish I was on the other side of the table in this moment. And was your boss supportive of you acting? Because I think another thing that's hard with those situations is sometimes like they want you to hide that fact. Was that a thing? Did you feel any like level of like you had to hide this aspect of who you were? Luckily, the one I worked for the most was um, Melissa Delizia, who casts Pen15 and Drunk History and oh, like wow. a lot of really amazing shows. Yeah. So she's and she's been one of my dear friends. When I interned on CSI Miami out of college, she was the assistant and I was the intern. And so we've just stayed very, very close. So whenever I've gone and worked with her, it's always been with the understanding that I'm an actor. And she even would let me occasionally audition for a different role on one of the shows. She'd be like, you know what, Michael, just like at the end of a session, she'd be like, why don't you run? Because you'd be really funny in this. Oh, I love her. So yeah. And like I worked for Susie Ferris and um, Jim Carnahan in New York. And all of them were always, it was always with the knowledge that I was an actor first, casting second. Yeah. They would hire me knowing they were like, yeah, but like, if you get a job that you, you know, that takes you away, like, go for it. You know, if you need to run off and do an audition really quickly, like, go for it. Just, you know, be back in time for session. I love that. I found most casting directors are nice people in general. So 
Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree with you. And I think that that's such a good note for anybody who is in an adjacent industry, I think it's very important to be upfront about what you really desire. Yeah. And that, you know, this is who you really are and you're here and you want to do an amazing job while you're there in the job. But to let them know what your end game is, I think is just fair to you and to them. So I love that you did that. Yeah. And I'm wondering, like, what was the final breaking point where you're like, I have to get back to this. I have to go to school again or else I don't know if I'm ever going to take this path. Like, was there one moment of clarity for you where you decided to make the shift? It wasn't necessarily one moment. It was sort of sort of over a period of time where I was auditioning and not getting very much. I was at a weird age anyway, as far as roles go, and had just finished a casting gig that uh, was a little bit difficult than some of the other ones. And I was like, Ugh, I, I don't think I want to go back into casting after what just happened, but I'm not getting many roles is this really the business for me? And I was 28 and having that moment, where I was like really questioning if I wanted to stay in entertainment. And I was like, you know, I've been doing this since I was six. Maybe I should find something else. And that's why I was like, you know, I'm going to audition for grad schools. And if I get in somewhere, then this is a sign that I need to keep doing this. If I don't get in anywhere, then this is a sign I need to sit down and do some really deep self-reflection. And luckily got into all of my grad schools that I'd applied for. So it felt like a pretty good sign that I was like, oh, no, no, I should keep doing this. Yeah. Since I have a choice. And that's why grad school was that sort of wonderful kick in the pants that I needed to make me sort of fall in love with acting again. Because I think it had been sort of a year long process before that of slowly just things not going well. And personally, too, like things in my personal life not going well. And I just really needed to hit that sort of reset button in many ways. What did it feel like to fall in love with acting again? I love this idea because, you know, it's like we have this spark as a child, like your six-year-old self playing the prince. And then as we get involved in the business aspect of what our creative passion is, sometimes that slowly whittles away and dims and dims and dims until you have almost nothing left. So what did it feel like to light that up again? Oh, it was incredible. It... Oh, it's so hard to describe because it was really intimidating at first because obviously, you know, I'm back in this, you know, very prestigious school. These a lot of the other people in my class were much more like had only done Shakespeare leading up to this. You know, they were I was one of the few sort of like, I'm a musical theater comedy guy. So it was a little intimidating at first, but it was the first role I think I did because it was one of those programs where you're constantly cast in shows while you're in school. And so we did Richard II was the first one we did. And I got Richard. And it was basically like the first time I started to say those speeches and our director, they hired professional directors to come in from London. And there's this very prestigious age of British director who had worked for the old Vic and had directed this many times and knew Laurence Olivier. And he, he sat down our first rehearsal. We did a, you know, we read through the play and he was like, you're quite good. Was, I'm quite glad you're doing this. <laughs> but it was saying those words again, just felt so good. It felt so easy and natural. It just felt sort of like, this is what my body, this is what I'm meant to do. I don't know. It's hard to describe that feeling, I suppose. It's like jumping. I don't know. It's like stepping into sunshine after three rainy days. Mm, oh, beautiful, Michael. Yeah, that's such a great description. It sounds like you were also in flow. Like it, it feels like from what you described before, you were kind of just like, trying to figure out how to take step after step. Yeah. And then it felt like you were kind of like running when you got into grad school. Yeah. It's like, was it in Forrest Gump when he's like going in the braces sort of break off and all of a sudden he's just sprinting down the road a little bit like that. Yeah. Oh my gosh. It was your Gump moment. It was my Gump moment. (laughs) That's beautiful. So you come back, do you go back to New York after you finish school? Like what, I know you mostly make a theater career after that, but tell me what happened. Yeah. So 
ironically, came back, needed money, went right out to LA and went into six months of back into casting, actually, because, you know, I had just been in grad school. Did a little bit of theater there. Yeah. And then went back to New York and started auditioning. And I basically just kind of kept working from there. I went and did Bullets Over Broadway in Philly. I did Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime down in Florida for a long time, which was wonderful. And then got very into improv as well in New York, which is sort of what's led to this, all this TikTok quarantine time stuff, because I discovered improv comedy and loved it. So I started getting really big into the New York sort of improv comedy scene. Yes. Um, And that's about where I was when everything went into lockdown. And we're going to get deep into that. Before we do, I want to talk with you a little bit because a lot of what we talk about on the show is mental health. And I know I've definitely had many nights pounding the ground, asking God, why do you even love me? Oh my God. Yeah. (laughs) You know, I'm curious, like, how have you gotten through your darkest moments in your career and pushed on? And like, what would be your advice for other people who are struggling with their mental health in the midst of their creative journey? Oh yeah. And you're, you're not kidding. It's tough. Um, the biggest thing is not being afraid to ask for help. I think maybe because I grew up with a mother who's a psychologist who specializes in adolescent development. So that was a real journey growing up. Um, but I grew up thinking I could just always sort of self-diagnose and I can figure this out myself and I don't need help. And that I think is, it just makes everything so much harder. Once I finally learned to sort of let that pride go And go to friends when I needed to vent and not feeling guilty about venting and not feeling guilty about feeling depressed and not feeling embarrassed about feeling depressed. I think I personally still held on to a lot of those sort of stigmas that this was a bad thing that I'm not allowed to talk about. I'm only allowed to be positive. London was a big place where I figured that out. I had a couple of friends who I learned to really go to when I was going through a tough time. I think before that I was trying to bottle things up, which where I talk about when I was in a bad place personally, I think I was just very, very depressed. And that's part of the reason I wasn't getting roles and wasn't doing as well was because I just sort of lost faith in myself and lost any semblance of self-confidence. And so going back to school really brought that back. And then I had one friend in particular, we would go to the gym, my friend, uh, Alyssa, and she would get on the, the bike, the, um, the cycling machine or whatever, uh, the spinning machine. And I would just stand next to her and we both wouldn't even exercise. We would just take turns crying. Like, and finally just like working out a lot of the stuff that I had built up that like when you're back in drama school, you know, you're working through things because it's acting classes and you can't help it. Like you're working with emotions. And then, yeah. So, you know, we would have class and then we'd go and rehearsal and then we'd go to the gym after and I'd be like, this just made me think of this and it's really hard. And she's on the bike, not even pedaling. And she's like, I know. You should do something with that. Like the two of you should make some sort of sketch or scene. Like that's a good series. I know she's in New York too, but yeah, she's still that friend for me. So that's the thing is like finding those people that you can trust to like really open up to and, you know, and not being afraid to do that. Not being afraid that your emotions are somebody else's burden because they're not, you know, and you really can't do it by yourself. Yeah. So now when you feel something like that coming, cause I'm sure, you know, you've had an amazing quarantine and done so many great things, but we all had those times during the pandemic. There were definitely desperate moments for every living soul. So when you do feel those moments coming up, what do you do to kind of nip it in the bud? Well, first acknowledging that you're feeling bad. Yes. I'm, I'm a big, I've, I'm the worst person when it comes to like emotional denial where it's like, no, I'm fine. It's like, no, no, no. Be like, I'm having a bad day. And acknowledging that when somebody reaches out and they're like, how are you doing? It's like, nah, today's not a great day. It's like, oh, why? And then you can kind of get it off your chest. And then finding active things that still make me happy, like little things that I can do to make myself happy. Like in quarantine, I just found that if I just went for a walk 
And there was a coffee shop near me and I love coffee. And it's like, okay, this already isn't feeling like a great one. I'm going to walk the mile to this coffee shop that thank God is still doing like takeaway, get my iced coffee, even if it's freezing and walk back and sip it. And then knitting. I found that knitting made me really happy. I love it. I think it's because it's a repetitive thing. And I'm like a nail biter too. I'm a fidgety person. And so the fact of like, I'm doing this very repetitive thing over and over that I can control. And I'm making this absolutely hideous scarf, but you know what? It's still something Um, that it was like finding that little thing. It's like finding those little things that will make you happy in that moment and being like, you know what? I'm just going to take 15 minutes and do this for a second. Yeah. And I think that's so important too, because like, obviously we have like our high level creativity and the things that are aspirational passions, but I think it's really important to have hobbies still. And it's so easy when you're in our line of work to forget that it's cool and normal and important to have a hobby. Like you don't have to monetize everything. Yeah. That's what people are like, are you going to sell your scarves? I was like, I wouldn't buy these scarves and I made them. They're so they're literally therapy scarves. Like they, they look as upset as I was in that moment, probably. Therapy (laughs) scarves. I love that. Yeah. Um, well, I'm very happy that you found therapy scarves. Now I want my own version of that. You've inspired me. (laughs) Good. Um, let's get into Moira. Let's get into how this all went down. So the pandemic hits the thing you've been doing that you're loving improv vanishes. Yeah. What do you do when this starts to happen? So I at first felt very lost because also I was still auditioning. I was up for a couple of shows when things went down and I've never considered myself a writer. I tried stand up once and it was terrifying and I hadn't really done sketch. All my friends from improv and stuff were creating podcasts and web series and things like that. I was like, oh, I don't know. And then I did this impersonation challenge with my roommate where he did David and I did Moira and he let me borrow an old wig he had from Halloween costume. And our friends all thought it was hilarious. And I was like, well, maybe this is what I'll do. I'll do a little like a little YouTube show where it'll be like Moira Rose and David chit chatting about like life in quarantine. And my roommate had no desire to do it, but he was like, but you can borrow my wigs. I was like, okay. So the first two episodes, I guess you could say of, of tea time, Um, was I just put a wig on my head, put on a black sweater with a necklace and propped my phone up and just sort of riffed as Moira till I had like a minute long thing that I liked and then just sort of posted it and not thinking anyone would actually watch this. But then the second one, yeah, got a few thousand views. And that was on TikTok, Instagram, YouTube? That was on Instagram. Okay. So that's where I posted these first because I was only on Instagram when I first started because I know nothing about social media, ironically. And (laughs) yeah, I remember I did that first. The second one got a few thousand. That's when my mom called me and she was like, Michael, if this is going to be your thing, if you're going to be doing this, please try and keep these positive. Just like make every video something positive. And I was like, good, no. And then a friend of mine who does drag called me and he was like, Michael, if you're going to do this, brush your damn hair. <laughs> Another really good no. So after that, I brushed my wigs and I got more wigs. And that became, again, kind of therapeutic where it was like a couple times a week, I'd make one of these and they each had a different theme, but they each would be something that I felt very honestly that I was grappling with in quarantine. And I was like, how can I make this positive? How can I sort of stick to that Shit's Creek brand of where they really are so upbeat and so hopeful so it would be like you know Moira being like remember maybe go for a walk and get your vitamin D don't forget (laughs) that part of being on lockdown is still going out and getting your fresh air you know or like I gardened and brought in other characters to like play with her and have tea with her but always with that sort of sense of like okay how can I find the silver lining Mm. which was wonderful 
Yeah. And I love when you do the impression, your face literally looks like her face. I mean, I don't know (laughs) how you do it, but it's uncanny. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I don't know. Cause I never really sat down and practiced her. It just sort of happened. I think the first time I really worked on it was when enough people asked me to do the fruit wine commercial and for Schitt's Creek fans know that episode. And that was the first time I was like, okay, well, let me practice like by memorizing it was I just watched it over and over and so probably it got better after that because I watched her so many times and sort of learned the the vocal choreography of that monologue well you have it down (laughs) very good of you to say um so I like that you talk about how like you never considered yourself a writer and I read a whole piece you did and uh, I think it was, was it pop sugar Yeah, where you talked about imposter syndrome? Yeah. And I think that's something that keeps us a lot of us from trying new things or even like owning the things that we're already doing. So how do you work through imposter syndrome and what's your advice for other people who are grappling with that? Yeah. Oh man. So the first, so this is how big of a social media imposter I am. And that like, I was asked to speak about imposter syndrome and I had to Google it because I didn't know what it meant. And then I read it and I was like, Oh, I'm the, the definition of this. Yeah. Cause like now I, I joined TikTok to post videos and then I had to learn how to use Twitter to then share videos there. Cause like Jason Buttigieg requested a video and I was like, well, I mean, if he wants one, sure. So yeah, dealing with that at first, I was like, I have no right to be blowing up here. I watch black and white movies and have a very large collection of cardigans. I'm basically an 85 year old man masquerading as a 30 something. And all my friends were like, of everyone, you're the one who's making it on social media. It's a shock. Um, so, so yeah, it, it, it's a weird feeling. I do feel a lot like an imposter because I don't know how the trends work. I basically just write a little sketch show, but how I've dealt with it is just basically a being proud of what I'm making which I think a lot of actors and creators struggle with. Like you almost feel guilty for being proud of yourself. So learning to be like quite proud that I've made something good that seems to make people happy and also doing something that's so honest. You know, it's like, even though I'm doing a parody of a character and many characters that other people have created, obviously, for the most part, a lot of these sketches are how I'm feeling in that moment. And these are words that now I've written and they're very honest to where I am in that moment in time. And so that's how I've sort of gotten over it. It's like, no, 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 but this is, but this is very true to how I feel. And this is very much my perspective on life and or my perspective on this particular issue, but just as told by Moira Rose, mm. you know, and I've talked to different people who want to try and break into social media. It's like, you know, find something that rings very true and honest for you that you're genuinely passionate about. Because at least the TikTokers and Instagrammers that I follow and the ones that I connect to are all ones, even if they're just like in gray sweatpants dancing, you can tell when somebody is really loving what they're doing or when they're talking about something that they're genuinely very passionate about. And so that's what I think. I think if you're if you're being true to yourself and doing something that excites you, then that's what's most important. Yeah, that's great advice. So basically be proud of yourself, believe in yourself and do things that are deeply personal to you. Yeah. Because I think that's sometimes the hard thing about social media. Like when I see people doing like the pointing videos, I'm like, Oh God, I want to shrivel up and die. When I think about (laughs) me having to like point to a fucking word. Yeah. (laughs) I wouldn't know how to make one of those. I don't know how to either, but I think it's just such a great point that like, you don't have to do it the way that 
everybody else, by the way, not everybody's doing that, but the, the way that everybody else is doing it, you can do it your own way and have success in your own way. And I think you're a great reminder of that. Yeah. Like I was told when I first started by a friend who's like a big marketing person and he was like, Michael, you're doing TikTok wrong. And I was like, I am. And he was like, you're just monologuing into your phone or doing little sketches. You're supposed to be doing like the dance challenges or like, you know, whatever challenges. And I was like, I don't even know how to find those, but I'm just going to keep kind of doing what I'm doing. And then, you know, I got millions of views and I was like, so I think I did something right. Mr. Marketing. Mr. Marketing. Back off. <laughs> yeah. But also hired <laughs> me to be in your Just for Men commercials. Um, like right now. <laughs> Thank you. I have so much gray hair. I'm happy to color it. You have incredible hair. Thank you. Wonderful wave. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> I wonder how writing has changed your view on acting and what it could be for you. Yeah, I think it's made acting easier. So I feel so much more comfortable going into auditions now than I did before. And luckily now, you know, the world is reopening. So I'm auditioning a lot more than I was. And also now that more people know who I am, which is very exciting. But yeah, A, I, I memorize lines so much faster now because the way I do my sketches is I write them out first and then I like 80% memorize them and then immediately film them. So then I can still sort of improv and riff within what I've already created. But now it's like, because they're so quick and I do so many cameos now where I write them out, learn them in chunks and then film them that because I've been doing it almost every day and, you know, acting's you know, it's a muscle like anything else. So now having to memorize lines, at least, you know, three minute monologues every single day. Now, when I get an audition, I'm like, oh, I can memorize that in two minutes. Done. It's like, it's only three pages. Great. I'll have that done in 10 minutes. And it's so much easier to find the sort of the active words and the, the motivation with the character. Now that I've crafted so many scripts where I know what the character's thinking and feeling as I'm writing it, for some reason, my brain just sort of latches into sort of the active words within the, the lines that I'm having to learn, if that makes any sense. That totally does. So because you're now viewing it as a writer and an actor, you're able to get the intention behind the writer much faster than you would if you, when you were just acting. Yeah, because there's certain things my brain now is like, oh, that just makes sense. Obviously, like this is the word you emphasize and like that's the that's the place where you take that pause and stuff, because it's like the most sensical thing from a writer standpoint. And then also like finding now I have so much more courage to play within the, the beats where there isn't the writing, because I trust my comedy so much more than I used to. So now it's like, OK, they wrote a pause there. What can I do to fill that pause? That's like a cool, fun choice. And, you know, there's this level of confidence that I think didn't quite exist a year ago. You know, that's like, no, no, no. I, I think I've been told by enough people that I'm pretty funny. Let me take a risk. Let me try this thing. How do you work toward overcoming fear of failure? Oh, oh, oh. overcoming fear of failure. I actually, I just found out today that I didn't get a Broadway show that I was just in final callbacks for. Mm. So it's like, that's, that's been a theme this evening. It's like, how do I, it, that's, I had a moment not an hour ago that I was like, ugh, that feeling of fit when you're so excited about a job and you don't get it. Um, overcoming that, it's that you let yourself have that moment. Like I just did this where I was like, have your moment, Michael, be bummed. Like I worked very hard on this. I had a bunch of callbacks. And it didn't happen and got great feedback from the creative team, from the casting director. You know, they're wonderful. It's just not the right time. 
which is totally fair. I've been there from the other side, but it was like, okay, be bummed. But then it's like, okay, but next, you know, what's next? I also had a, an audition this afternoon for something very exciting. Let's just like, not, you know, try and pretend to not be disappointed, but let's like shift that energy to be like, no, let's hope on that one now. I'm like, I'm going to give myself 20 minutes to just dream of booking the one that I did audition for today. Right. So you let yourself have like the full emotional, whatever it is, if it's a breakdown, if it's getting angry, feel whatever you feel, then move on to something that you can control or something you can be excited about. Yeah. And be like, and just like, okay, no, no, no. There's still things to hope for. Like that didn't work out, but you know, there's this one that I can hope for. And there's hopefully another one next week. It's like, okay, let's, let's now channel that energy into like something slightly more positive. Yeah. You know, it's just, I, I mean, I'm sure you're very sensitive because you're an artist. Like, it's just so hard to be this sensitive and be alive sometimes. Yes, it is. You know, and it is that roller coaster. And I've had yeah. people say like, how is it dealing with that rejection? It's like, you just, you just kind of have to, it's part of the job, you know, and hopefully you do get excited about every audition you get. And hopefully you do have that sort of daydream moment of what you do when you book it, because otherwise why do this? Right. You know, I think hopefully you're focusing more on the hope than on the disappointment. Yeah. Um, Because there's an awful lot of disappointment. Well, and the beautiful thing is now that you're creating your own content, you really have the power to act whenever you want. Like, yeah, what I found most discouraging when I was first pursuing acting was that I had to wait, like, which is why I ended up going more toward music and broadcasting, because I liked the idea that I could stand on a street corner and sing a song. I could go into a mic and, and do a podcast and post it right away at that time, which was like, you know, early 2012, this didn't exist as much like there was YouTube, but it wasn't as quick. Mm -hmm. Now you can just like go on your phone and create something. And it's so amazing. And I love that you kind of, you took your power back and stepped forward in this way. Yeah, in such a huge way. And and that's why I wish I had had this confidence 10 years ago, you know, to create something like this, to trust that I was good enough to create something on my own instead of always relying on other people to do it for me. And yeah, it's such a liberating feeling. And I think that's probably why I'm doing a better job now walking into auditions because there isn't quite as much pressure on it because it is like, you know, I'm going to do this and I'm going to give it my best. And I would love to book whatever this job is, but yeah, but also when I go home tonight, I have to film three cameos and I'm going to do a sketch tomorrow. So it's like, I know I still will be acting. And so you're right. I hadn't really thought about it that way, but yeah, it does. It does make it much easier when you're also creating your own stuff. Yeah. I really look at it. Like you freed yourself. Yeah. You became an entrepreneur. Yeah. And that's where this has been so special is that like, how often as an actor do you get to make something that you a enjoy making that makes other people happy and also like is meaningful to people and then you get paid to do it like it's sort of like the dream it's a great scam yeah it's a great scam <laughs> and 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 nice that i get to sort of do it on my own time in my kitchen and now i have all these great wigs so if ever i go to a themed party i'm all set oh my god the the benefits just do not end i tell you <laughs> So tell me this. Do you think you're ever going to get sick of playing Moira? Do you ever get sick of it? No, I, I think there have been moments where there have been moments where I felt a little bit lonely doing this on my own. Mm -hmm. There were a couple of times in quarantine where I, I've yet to run out of ideas for sketches because luckily I don't do them every single day. I know TikTokers who post every day and I was like, I don't know how you do that. I do like maybe two or three a week. But there were moments where I was like, I kind of miss having another collaborator. 
I kind of miss working with another actor or having a director in the room. So there were more of those moments where it wasn't I was tired of making Moira. I was just a little tired sometimes of doing it by myself. But then there are the days where it's like, I'm so glad I'm doing this by myself because I can do it in my own time on my own schedule and be as persnickety as I want. So it was more that, but no, I don't know if I would ever get tired of doing this character or these host of characters that I do because they're all just so lovely and fun. Yeah. You know? And I'm curious because I do think that there's such a big benefit to working with someone else, but there's also a drawback, like depending on how much effort each person's putting in. If you're doing 85% of the work, the other person's kind of just dragging along. It can feel very bad. But if you're both kind of 50-50, I think it can expedite your success. What has been, in your opinion, the benefit of working solo versus working in a partnership or in a group? Well, first working solo was very scary because it's all on you. So like, if it doesn't go well, if people don't think it's funny, it's nobody's fault but your own. So that's very intimidating. But once I found some confidence, once I found my groove, once I had a little bit of a following, then it's great because then also you don't have to share the credit with some people. But also I started to get not obsessive, but just much more particular about the, the scripts that I was writing and how I was doing the characters. And sometimes, you know, it would take me a whole afternoon to do a video just because I would, I could sit and, you know, really nitpick at it where sometimes when you have another person there, you have to consider that they might have other things to do with their lives. Um, so I like that I sort of had the freedom to be as particular as I wanted to be and unapologetically so because I was working on nobody's schedule but my own. But but now also like I'm writing a, a pilot with a friend who's an actor in London and that's been kind of nice to be doing at the same time now because it's like, okay, I know that I can do my draft and then I can send it to him and like his ideas will be things I never would have thought of. So yeah, I like that right now I'm sort of doing both. But yes, they both have definitely their pros and cons. Yeah, I think that's probably the good way to do it is the best of both worlds. You don't want to always be relying on another person just to be able to create something. But also, it's nice to have somebody to be a mirror for you and to go back and forth and bounce ideas off of. So like that. Your bio also said that you want to be on SNL someday. I love that you wrote this in your bio. And Uh I'll tell you why. I think it's really important to tell people what you want to do. Because I don't know if you believe in manifesting, but so many times in my life, just by saying what I wanted and telling other people what I wanted, little helpers in my life helped me find a way to get there. So I think it's powerful from that perspective, but also because most people aren't really willing to be like, this is my dream that I'm not at yet. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people in this industry, in order to you know make themselves, I don't know if it's to seem like stronger or like they have it more together won't say what their deepest desire is if they're not there yet. And I love that you put that down. Can you tell me a little bit about the thought process behind putting that in your bio? And yeah, well, I, because I fully agree with you. I think there's a lot of times when I was afraid to sort of like put things out there and now it's like, well, yeah, of course, like this is, this is something that I want. And, and who knows, maybe somebody from NBC will see that and they're like, Oh, and that's right. He does all, he does these like 20 wacky characters and he does all these impressions. Maybe he'd be great on this show. Um, or like someone who is maybe creating something similar where they're like, we're doing this other sketch show. And that's right. You do sketch stuff. I like that there to put it out there that there's sort of that balance. It's like, yes, I have this classical training. Yes, I uh, do lots of theater, but I love doing sketch. And that's what sort of is becoming a real passion is doing these sketch comedy and doing impressions and doing things like that. And so now I'm looking at things, something like SNL. It's like, that really is the dream now. That's sort of like, you know, the the grand dame version of sort of like this bebe thing that I'm doing right now. Um, you know, 
Tea Time is sort of its own little like weird brand of weekend update. Yeah. And uh, so that's like, like just putting it out there. I think, yeah, I that's it's kind of that idea of like, if you put it out there, you never know who might see it and how something like that might manifest. I don't think people should be afraid to sort of announce what their dreams are. And also, I feel like, especially in this industry, I feel like you're always sort of reaching towards something because say, you know, say miraculously end up on SNL next year. Then I'm on SNL for a few years. And then it's like, you know what? Now, you know what I want to do is start to write movies and like make movies or like do a series and branch off and do a series. I feel like in this business, you're always sort of moving forward. 100%. I totally agree. But I think a lot of people are afraid to say that they want something more or that they're not to the exact place they want to be at yet. And I really respected that you did that. And actually, honestly, inspired me because I'm like, what could I add to my bio? That's one of the things that I want in my life. It, it made me think more deeply about it. Yeah. Well, that's like, I remember when I was young, seeing a quote, um, Gary Beach. I don't know. He's a, he was a big Broadway star. He did. He was in the original cast of the producers. He won a Tony for that. And he was the original Lumiere in Beauty and the Beast. And I, I love him. And I saw him do a production of Lacage on Broadway. And after he gave this interview where they were like, well, how does it feel, you know, now that you've made it, you know, you're a star, you're a two-time Tony winner, you know, starring in a Broadway show. And he was like, made it. I haven't made it. And they were like, well, but you're starring in a Broadway show. And he was like, yeah, it's a contract that will eventually end. I don't know what making it means. No actor ever makes it. You're never guaranteed anything. This business is so mercurial. So that kind of stuck with me. I was like, wow, look at this guy who has like all these Broadway credits and he's starring in a Broadway show. And even he says like, I haven't made it. I'm always sort of looking ahead to the next job. Yeah. Um, and that has just always stuck with me. Or like Judy Dench said, she every time she finishes a movie, she's she has this moment where she's desperately afraid that she'll never book another one. And it's like, you're Judy Dench. And like, you have these feelings, the same feelings of insecurity that I have. That's crazy. I think if every human though was thinking logically, like that, that's the thing that I try to bring up a lot on the show is like nothing really actually has security. Like even if you're working for a company, you could be fired the next day. So you might as well do what you love because at least you could be insecure doing what you love. Totally. And life is so short. I don't know. I ugh, I know my family's traveled a lot and we we always have these like near death experiences. It's weird. I thought it was normal. And then I talked to a friend. I was like, so you haven't been like a boat that almost sunk or a plane that almost crashed or like toppled over a motorcycle. And they're like, no, Michael, that's just you. But <laughs> I don't know. It's these reminders that like life, life is so short. So like you should try and enjoy yourself, you know, while you're here, like do things that are going to make you happy. Yeah. And speaking of your family, I watched an interview you did. I think it was with a a morning show in Salt Lake city or something uh-huh. or park city. Yeah. Um, and you talked about how you had been quarantining quite a bit with your family and I did too. I went back to Detroit a lot during the pandemic. So I was wondering what role has your family played in your creative career and how has their support helped you along the way? Oh, it's been huge. I mean, like my, my parents brought me to see Beauty and the Beast when I was six. And um, I remember walking out of that show and thinking like, I, and saying, I was like, I want to be up there one day. I want to be the candlestick. <laughs> and so they, my mom took me to audition for the King and I, and luckily like my mom grew up just outside New York city. And so she grew up going to see Broadway shows and opera and like loves theater and opera. And then my dad was a musician before he was a lawyer. He's a professional musician. And so we always grew up I always grew up with theater, with music, always going on in our house. And my parents were very supportive of me having a creative career. 
And like my mom is a huge old movie buff and comedy buff. And so she introduced me when I was very young to, you know, old slapstick comedies like Arsenic and Old Lace and Harvey and Mel Brooks movies and Monty Python and Lucille Ball and like all those sort of comedy greats that I think really informed who I am now. Because when I was a kid, like I would memorize, you know, the Vitamin to Vegemin sketch from I Love Lucy or like different Robin Williams stand-up routines where he would do all those crazy voices and like, and perform them at dinner. And luckily my parents didn't tell me to shut up and, you know, eat my peas. They were like, no, 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 it's hilarious. Keep going. So <laughs> free entertainment. Come on. Yeah. So luckily <laughs> they were always supportive of me being like a wacky little oddball, which has really come in handy. I think that's part of the reason I can do a lot of these voices now is because when I was a little kid, I would imitate Monty Python and Mel Brooks and all those characters when I was, you know, like eight years old. And thankfully I had parents who thought it was hilarious and an older sister who's a very successful engineer who has a real people job. So they were like, chase your dreams because she'll pay for our nursing home. Um, it's so, great two for one special. Basically. <laughs> Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm very, very lucky. Like there's a point when I was auditioning and was broke, like broke, like many actors hit that point. And my sister lives in New York and she let me come live with her rent free for like six months. And she was like, I'll feed you. You stay with me. Just watch my dog when I'm at work and like, go do your auditions, chase your dreams. Like, don't worry about rent for the next six months, save some money. And, you know, not everybody has a family like that. You know, I know a lot of actors who have had to give it up because they didn't have that kind of a support system that I have. Oh, I love your sister. What a beautiful human. She's the best. Because look at you now. It was all worth it. <laughs> yeah. And and yeah, and luckily they love this. You know, also, I think there are loads of parents out there that would not be okay with their grown son putting on a wig, pretending to be a woman in her late 60s. You know, <laughs> like my dad is my you know biggest fan, I think. Like he he joined TikTok just so he could like comment and like things to help with the algorithm. Oh. And now he's like fully addicted to TikTok. Because like the first time I came home, you know, I was all nervous. I was like, my dad's going to hate this and be all embarrassed. And he had memorized all my sketches I had done to that point. Like he knew them by heart and had sent them to all of his friends. And my mom, the same, the, she bought me a whole bunch of wigs because her friends at work told her I needed more variety. <laughs> like, and my sister was the first one. She was like, you have to do Britney Spears. And she like actually helped me write my first Britney Spears sketch. And she like did the research for me on like, what kinds of things Britney would say. Oh my gosh. So actually to be fair, Allison, my sister is my first collaborator, I guess you could say. Oh yes. You know, and she's your co-writer. And she had just had ankle surgery too. So we both were home. She's been quarantining with my parents pretty much this whole time. So whenever I go home, she'll help me with them. But I remember doing Britney the first time. And now like, I love doing Britney Spears. 
And like, I'm in one room filming and she's in the other room, like with her foot in a cast propped up and she can hear me. And I'll be like, and then Moira, I did this. She'll be like, too low, Michael. I'd be like, okay, cool. And then I do this. She's like, no, 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 too fast. You don't sound. So she's like shouting notes to me from the other room. Maybe her second career will be as a TikTok director. It sounds like she has it. <laughs> she's, I think she's funnier than I am. Everybody says that. It sounds like you're a good team. It sounds like you're a good team. And also I yeah. want your family to teach a class on how to support a creative sibling or child. Like what you've just told me, I'm probably going to be crying for the rest of the night off and on because it's so beautiful. Like it, it just... We all deserve that sort of support. And I'm so, so happy you have it because look what it's done. It's allowed you to flourish. Yeah, no, that's what I, and I definitely don't take them for granted. No, I can tell. I mean, the way you talk about them, it's, you, you glow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, it is pride month and I know you're part of the LGBTQIA community. Yes. And I'm wondering, you know, if there's somebody listening to this who maybe, you know, they're creative and they're gay or trans and they feel like they can't come out or be supported like what would be your advice to them on where to begin to start stepping into themselves and living out loud Ooh, oh that's tough because I I do feel that to an extent because it took me a long time to become comfortable in my own skin I guess you could say and sort of in my own sexuality you know, not that I wasn't supported. It was sort of my own self-judgment that like, I thought there was something wrong with me. And I was really afraid of being a stereotype or being judged. So I purposely would speak in such a way I wouldn't try and audition for like super gay characters. It took me a long time to sort of, to love myself in that respect. And I never years ago would have had the courage to wear a wig, you know, and dress like a woman because I would be so afraid of being judged. So I've, I mean, I applaud anyone younger than me who finds that and has the courage to really be themselves so out loud at a younger age. So to those kids, like, I get where your that fear comes from. I don't know. I, I wish I had better advice just because I feel very lucky that, like, I, you know, had a family who was supportive. And then I've always lived in big cities. I lived in New York City or L.A. or London, where you're way less likely to be judged for being who you are. And I'm in an industry that is very supportive. I don't know, for all those kids out there, I think it's just, it starts with you. You know, it starts with loving yourself first and looking in the mirror and being able to acknowledge who you are a thousand percent and being so proud of who you are and loving who you are a thousand percent. It starts there. And then finding those people in your life who will also love you for who you are. And that's where I think social media can be a really beautiful thing because it's so connective worldwide where even if there's nobody right around you, even if there's nobody right in your family or immediately with you, there are loads of people out there. Message me. I mean, DM me. I'll tell you you're great. I read every single message I get and I respond to every single message I get. And a lot of them have been people like that who have said like, you've inspired me to, you know, come out of, you know, my shell. You know, and then if I can't help you, I'll help you find somebody who can, you know, it's like reach out to people who, who do inspire you, who make you feel good, who sort of you emulate and see what they can do for you. Cause there's always somebody out there who will reach out to you. There's always someone who will lend a hand, who will help you, or just listen if you need to work through something, you know, it's sort of that reminder that you really are not alone. And thankfully we live in a world where we can connect with people very easily. Oh, that's beautiful advice. It really is. And what a beautiful thing that you've also offered yourself 
as a little, Oh, for sure. A little online mentor. The other day I was up to like two o'clock in the morning messaging with the, this person who I've never met who might never meet, but they were like, Hey, you did a, you know, you did a story where you talked about this and it made me question. I don't know. I think I might be bisexual and I know I don't know you, but I connect to your videos and you seem friendly. Can I just talk for a second? And I was like, well, obviously person, I don't know. Of course. Like I'm not a trained sexual health professional, but if you just need somebody to bounce these eyes, you know, ideas off and tell you that you're great, then I'll be that person. You are, you are. You talked a lot about self-love in that answer. And a big part of this show is the journey to self-love and how to find self-love and continue evolving in that. Because I really feel like if you don't love yourself at some base level, it's really hard to believe you have the right to pursue your dreams. Oh, yeah. What has your journey with self-love been and how do you work on that today? Um, this, this past year, actually doing all this quarantine time stuff has been huge in that respect. A lot of it is because, like I said, I, I'm, I'm writing my own words and I'm acting my own words. And a lot of them are very autobiographical, which it's putting yourself in a very vulnerable place. And the fact that I've done that and then gotten positive feedback has been enormous. I find that I am so much more confident now when I just even ordering coffee. I think I used to be like, hi, I think I'll have a venti, but like, if you, you know, it's like, I think I'm sorry for disturbing you. It's like, no, 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 no. Like own who you are. And so that's been a huge journey for me, especially over the last year. And I think for actors, that's very difficult because you're constantly, you know, hearing no, you're doing, you're putting yourself in auditions where even though you're playing a character, you're you. And you're putting yourself in these very vulnerable places on hopefully a daily basis. So I think it can be really difficult to sometimes go home and sort of reaffirm that you are a valuable person (laughs) that deserves to be loved, especially by yourself, and that your voice and your energy and your thoughts and your perspectives are all worthwhile and necessary, everybody, you know, so... I don't know if that answered your question. I kind of spiraled off. I think it did. So I think I get what you're saying. So like Moira doing Moira, writing this stuff, like empowering yourself in that way is kind of what helped you come into loving yourself because you had to put yourself out there and be vulnerable. So if I could like dissect that and figure out what that could be for someone else, it would be do something that builds your self-esteem then put that thing out into the world. And even no matter how it's received, just being proud of it and knowing that you created that thing that was a piece of your soul, that can help you build self-love and carries through to things even as simple as going out and ordering a coffee, like doing it with an intention versus like apologizing for the fact that you're there. Yeah, exactly. Well, could you translate every answer I do? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I'd love to. It'd be my honor. And my poor tea. I feel like I'm the worst in interviews sometimes because I ramble so much. Um, you really don't. You really don't. But I got what you were saying. I, I sometimes I do that a lot on the show with everybody, regardless of how they speak, just like breaking it down for the person listening, because I think it's helpful to hear it, like not in a specific situation, kind of like how they can globally use it in their lives. Uh-huh. No, thank you. And you're very good at that. So thank you. Oh, thank you. Well, thank you for the great answer. So your mom is a psychologist. We talked a little bit about mental health. Yes. Did you ever end up going to therapy? Yes. So first I had a therapist briefly when I was in college because so I have ADHD. And for the most part, luckily with a mother who's a psychologist, we worked through it. 
But then at one point in college, I got my first D and she was like, this is crazy. So (laughs) not this is crazy. She was just like, you need help. So saw a therapist then and actually, you know, got some medication to help me focus, which I actually didn't like and didn't use for very long and just figured out new coping strategies. And then had a therapist again when I was in grad school because we were just going through some really difficult family things. And Mm. between drama school and that, it was just a lot to handle. And the head of my program was like, if you're going to succeed in in school, you need to have somebody to talk to. So I saw a therapist there, but it was one of those very, where she, she was lovely, but it was very like clinical. You know, she sat in a white room with a clipboard and was like, just talk. And, you know, for somebody who's a talker, found himself surprisingly speechless. And I was like, I don't even know where to start. So that wasn't really the style for me, but still, it's still better than nothing. Um, But in New York, eventually I found this really wonderful therapist who I went to for a long time, who's a creative arts therapist. And that's where I was like, once I found out that was a thing. And so for, you know, creative people in general, it was magical because he spoke to me like a drama teacher, which is, you know, drama schools where I felt very, my most comfortable because he had a PhD in clinical psychology, but then a master's in musicology and creative arts therapy. So he would say things like, okay, Michael, sit on the couch, but find your ground, have your feet flat on the floor, breathe where's your tension, you know, find your spine, where are you holding your tension today? You know, or if I didn't know where to start, he would be like, well, what songs have been stuck in your head for the last week? And I'd be like, well, this song, he'd be like, okay, cool, get up and sing it. And either he would play it on the piano with me, or we would find an, a, a track that I could sing to and he would just watch. And I would sing the song and he'd be like, okay, so I don't know if you're aware of this, but your whole body tensed on this word or on this line. Um, or your body relaxed on this word in this line. Why do you think that is? And why do you think this is the song that's stuck in your head? And how do you feel now having expressed it? And it was, it would always be a brilliant jumping off point. Or there was one time where I couldn't even, I was so upset about this, about a breakup. And I couldn't even speak. And he just got out his guitar and just played chords. And it just made me cry. And I'm not much of a crier, but I was just like, poof. Something about the chords that he chose just sort of unlocked something inside me. Oh my gosh, you just blew my mind. Yeah, sorry. So he, that's where I loved him. So if, if wherever you are, even if, you know, you're not a necessarily creative arts person, I mean, creative arts therapy is great. So it's called creative arts therapy. Did you just Google that? How did you find this human? That's what I was Googling psychologists in, in New York city. And he just sort of came up because, you know, they have those lists everywhere and yeah, he came up and I saw creative arts and I was like, I wonder what that means. And did some research and I was like, Oh no, this is a thing. That's why I was like, Oh, well, this is perfect. Cause it doesn't feel like therapy in the traditional sense. I mean, there were days where you could just sit on the couch and just talk if you wanted to, but it, it just gave me so much more options to express myself than just with words. And it gets deeper than that, because when you're feeling something based on the chord progression someone's playing, you're delving into something you might not even know you're feeling. Oh, yeah. And, and also, like, when you're a little kid, you know, think about it. When you're upset, you scream, you, de- you make sounds, not necessarily with words. And a lot of that is sort of what singing is, you know, just being able to sort of make sounds. And he would figure out how to interpret, like how you interpreted my answer. He would like interpret these sounds that I made and he could put them into words that I couldn't. And it would all just make sense, you know? Okay. So I loved it. It was brilliant. I think therapy is wonderful and we should all do it. (laughs) I totally agree. And now I want to do the kind of therapy you did. So you've inspired me. (laughs) It was magical. Yeah. (laughs) 
So, okay. Tell me about milk water. I know that this has also been a huge thing. It's won a bunch of awards. Tell me about it. Yes. So right before lockdown, I, yeah, I did my first feature film. It's called Milk Water. It's this beautiful uh, film about this young woman played by Molly Bernard from Younger. Most people know her from TV's Younger. And she's not adulting as well as all of her friends. She's, you know, in her mid thirties, she's living in New York city and she's feeling very left behind by her friends who are getting married, having babies, you know, all that stuff. And so- Stop calling me out. (laughs) I mean, this is where like, I read the script and I was like, oh my God, is this me? Um, I feel very attacked right now. (laughs) (laughs) So she sort of in this moment of looking for meaning sort of rashly decides to become a surrogate for this drag queen that she meets, this older man who's been trying to find a surrogate and keeps getting denied, partially because he's a single gay man. And um, so she agrees to do it. And so it's the, the movie is her pregnancy, but told, you know, everything from her perspective, which often you don't see these stories told from the surrogate's perspective, which is very interesting in her connection to him and, how this affects her friendships and her love life, obviously. So yeah, it's basically that one of those sort of coming of age stories, but in your thirties, you know, and over the course of a pregnancy. So it's very interesting. So I play, so her best friend is played by Robin De Jesus, you know, Tony nominee, brilliant actor. And I play his boyfriend, Teddy, who's this sort of like sweet, just sort of like happy to be there kind of fringe guy which is fun in a movie like this because he is sort of the outside perspective where it's like her and her friends are constantly like bickering that, you know, they're like, and he's the one who's like, I don't know if you thought about this. And they're like, shut up, Teddy. And he's like, but I'm right. Like, and it was one of those sort of great actory things where like I got the audition. I mean, I think the night before and I had to be at my day job the next morning. So I had like two hours to prepare for this. I didn't get a chance to read the script. I just read the scenes. And in my head, I was like, I don't know, this feels sort of like Alexis from Schitt's Creek. But if she was like a gay guy living in Hell's Kitchen, literally just did an Alexis impression, sent that in, found out the next day that I booked the role and then was on set a few days later and rolled it in our brilliant director, Morgan, who wrote and directed it. She was like, yeah, your your take was just so different from everybody else's. It was very intriguing. And at this point, I'd read the script and learned that it was more of a drama And I was like, yeah, well, everybody else probably read the script. They probably had the tone right. She was like, yeah, it was a really bold choice. And I was like, sure, we're going to call it that. It was a very bold choice, but it was a much smaller part too. And then I got on set and she let me just sort of like improvise different things in my first scene. And then before you know it, Teddy's role is just getting bigger and bigger and bigger, where all of a sudden I'm ending up in this scene and I'm being put in that scene. And now I'm in like the last third of the movie. So what started as this little bit part grew into a full on role. Just because the chemistry on set with Robin and Molly was great because they're two of the nicest people I think I've ever met. And the whole creative team, they were like, oh, no, he's funny. Let's use him in other scenes. I love that. That story is so amazing. I mean, why do you think that is, though? Like so often the ones that we prepare and prepare and prepare for, we don't get. But then you had two hours to figure this out and you didn't get to read the script and you got the tone wrong, but somehow it worked. Yeah. <laughs> Why do you think, do you think it's because you didn't put the pressure on it? Like, what is that? It could be. I think there's something to be said. Like I still knew my lines. I still knew my intentions. It was just all very quick. And I think there's something to be said for trusting your gut mm. when you're an actor. I don't know if other people do this, but I'm the worst at this. And this is where self tapes. I'm the worst with this, where I just overthink it so much. Oh yeah. You know, where you're just like, beyond overthinking this where it's like you've overanalyzed it into oblivion and at this point you're missing the mark because you're working too hard and you're thinking too hard and there's something to be said for like your first couple of takes where it's like no your gut is telling you this your gut's probably right 
and just trust it. Yeah. I think it was one of those moments where I didn't have time to overthink it, that I could only trust my gut, make a big old choice and go. And in this instance, it worked out. Yes. I love that. So the lesson for me is trust your gut and show up and you will be a star. There you go. <laughs> You'll be in award-winning films like Milk Water, available on Amazon. Try it today. <laughs> you are a delight. I have two final questions for you. I, w- I want to circle back to our little Michael because I do believe creativity is deeply connected to the inner child. And I'm wondering if, you know, you're looking at six-year-old Michael, you and him were standing in the same room, like he's a separate entity from you and looking at you. Uh-huh. What do you think you would say to him and why about his creative path? Oh, actually looking in the Zoom, we I have the same haircut I had when I was that age, so that works out well. Um, no, I would say to little me, I would say don't try to conform to what you think other people are telling you you need to be. You are kind of an oddball and you see the world differently from most people. And that's okay. And that's why people are going to learn to love you is because you're different and because your take on humor and your take, your perspective is different from most. And that's a good thing, not a bad thing. Because you're going to spend a lot of your life thinking that's a bad thing. Mm. So don't. (laughs) Just trust that you're exactly who you should be. And what do you think he would say to you now and why about where you're at? Um, He probably would say, why aren't you more successful, Michael? I had bigger dreams by the time you were this age, you should have done X, Y, Z. Um, no, I, I think me at that age would be like, I don't even know why you're giving me this advice because I'm great. I wear tuxedos to school and I wear spats and I love to tap dance in my free time. Why else would I, do, why would I ever change anything about myself? Well, he sounds amazing. He was a very snappy dresser. Snappy dresser, but also so confident. You know, it's like somehow life twists that out of us. And I just, I aspire to have that level of confidence and self-worth because I think something we all deserve and you had it figured out at such a young age. And I hope you carry that through in all your future endeavors because you're very special. Well, thank you. So are you. Thank you, love. Thank you for having me. This is a lot of fun. Thank you for listening. And thanks to my guest, Michael Judson Berry. For more info on Michael, follow him at M Judson Berry, B-E-R-R-Y on TikTok and Instagram. And check out his first feature film, Milk Water, available on Amazon Prime Video, Apple TV, Vudu, and YouTube. Thanks so much to Unleash associate producer, Emily Shulmanovich. You can follow her at We Can't Find Emily. Thanks to Liz Fole for the show's theme music. Follow her at Liz Fole. And again, thank you. If you like what you heard today, remember to rate, review, and follow Unleash on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Share the show with a friend and post about it on social media. Tag me at Lauren LaGrasso and at Unleash Your Inner Creative, and I will repost to share my gratitude. Also tag Michael at M. Judson Barry so he can share too. My wish for you this week is that you really feel into whatever it is that lights you up, whether it's acting, singing, painting, cooking, walking your dog, whatever. And you start thinking about how you might start to share that more in the world on your own terms. Maybe you share it more on social media. Maybe you just go on the corner and start selling some of your art. Maybe you just do it more because you never know what sharing that work or delving into it more where that road might lead. For Michael, 
it led to him doing what he loves full time. So I think we can do it too. I love you and I believe in you. Talk with you next week.